next uh, presenter, Professor Lynn Kiesling, currently professor at, or has been professor at Northwestern University, is starting in two weeks at Purdue University with a new fabulous position there. And she's going to talk about spontaneous order, but I think she organized it beforehand. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, and that, that's actually, I think, the punchline of my remarks for today is that uh, spontaneous orders and planned orders um, both have pros and cons, and both are necessary. Uh, just a little biographical uh, thing by way of introduction. I've been teaching in the economics department at Northwestern for 17 years. And in two weeks, I'm headed to Purdue. Uh, Purdue is starting up a, um, a research center, a Purdue University Research Center in Economics, and I'll be the associate director of that center. And we'll do uh, sound economics, I like to call it, applied microeconomic policy research, and uh, including my research in electricity technologies, digital technologies included, and electricity regulation. So um, some of that will probably come up in the, the, when I talk about environmental stuff. But if you're interested in digital technology issues, um, I'm not talking about that in any of my talks. But uh, definitely hit me up, because that's probably my favorite topic to talk about, other than electricity. Um, spontaneous order, though, is on the list. And I think the, um, the, the, the broad theme that I want to encourage you to think about draws on a lot of what Tom talked about last night and is at a bit more of a level of abstraction than, um, than Jeff just walked us through with, with some really good kind of concrete thinking. Uh, and I wanted to focus your attention on a phenomenon that I like to call emergence. And emergence in social systems is a phenomenon that we see in, in all social systems. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is think about social systems very broadly from the sort of unconscious, you know, not very cognitively advanced system of ants, right? Ants uh, have very intricate, very elaborate, very sophisticated social systems. And they achieve their goals in, uh, with amazing success. And they're very complicated in many ways. Um, but ants are, are you know, relatively simple creatures compared to humans. But we ourselves have um, a great capacity to create, but also to allow to emerge very intricate, very sophisticated social systems. And exchange, right, trade is, I think, the best example, the best demonstration of this phenomenon of how sophisticated and complex interactions among people can emerge without their ever deliberately going out and saying, right, OK, we're here. We have a boat. We're going to sail over to those guys. And we have green beans, and they have carrots, and we're going to trade with them. right? You, it, it's never quite that planned out. It's never that controlled, never that top down. If you go back the millennia over which humans have been exchanging with each other. And so from, from the anthill to the modern market, I think we see a broad swath of social systems that thrive and enable their individual participants to flourish. Um, and I'm, I'm going to bring some philosophy in here 
you know, so I, I tend to be very Aristotelian about this and use words like flourish a lot. These systems allow their participants to flourish, and especially when we think about human systems for exchange, for community, for social cooperation, um, we, some of the, the institutions that enable that to flourishing to happen emerge, and sometimes we create rules and impose them. And so what I want to walk through today is how those differ and how they interact with each other and what kind of results they create. Uh, the really important characteristic of spontaneous orders, and I really dislike the phrase spontaneous orders, and Tom's comments in the introduction illustrate why, because the word spontaneous immediately conjures in your mind the boom, there it is, right? Like Athena out of the head of Zeus. Oh, hey, look, we have trade. You know. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not how it works at all. So, um, so I, that's why I tend to like to, to think of it in terms of the phenomenon of emergence rather than spontaneous order. So I think of emergent order. Um, and one of the important characteristics of emergent order is that we can have these coordinated phenomena of social cooperation, such as trade, without central coordination. The famous articulation of this that I think probably most of you are familiar with is Leonard Reed's essay, I Pencil. And so if you haven't read iPencil, I recommend it. Uh, it's, it's a great articulation of the, you know, all of the different things that from the graphite to the wood to the paint to the ferrule to the, uh, to the rubber for the eraser, all of the different steps and intricacies that are involved in coming up with a pencil. No one person can do it, and no one person knows how to do every single one of those steps. Uh, and in my last talk tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to go into some detail about the knowledge and the kind of cognitive characteristics about that. Nobody knows how to do the whole thing. We do it as a decentralized yet coordinated system of cooperation, and that that's what trade really is. Um, another example from a recent uh, book, uh, Tales of a T-Shirt, I think it's called, um, uh, is uh, the, uh, this, in this book, Pietro Nivola follows the production of a t-shirt through all of its steps and around the world and finds that uh, the, the, the vast web, the network, the system of cooperation that's required to bring t-shirts to market is, um, she found staggering. And all of this is done without, like as Tom alluded to last night, without someone saying, okay, over here we need 40 boxes of t-shirts, and over here we need 10, and right? It just, you know, we figure it out. And, um, and out of that we create what, what in, when we think about in social science, the concept of order. And order in social science, I, I, I well, let me say it this way. I think we, uh, especially as, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little, um, I'm gonna be a little provocative and push back on on Tom with Tom on the language thing, and because I tend to think of, I want to, I want to reclaim the word liberal, and so I tend to think of myself as a classical liberal, and so especially now that the word liberal seems to be up for grabs again in the in the kind of current uh, the current you know. Uh, policy discussions, so I'm going to do everything I can to reclaim the word liberal for the idea of 
open exchange and, and co social cooperation through decentralized processes. Um, and so I think the idea of a liberal social order is one where these, um, these emergent without central coordination phenomena are allowed to happen. And so I have some examples of that that we're going to talk through in a second here. But some of the, and so the idea is, and, and this really emanates from, and I'll have a quote from Adam Smith here in a second, but this really emanates from the ideas of Adam Smith, the idea that, um, that we can have harmony, a harmonious social order, right? Free and responsible people living together in civil society is one way that you can articulate the idea of order. And that when that order, the conditions that allow that order to emerge as opposed to imposing it are what we, I think, when we do kind of thinking in terms of classical liberalism, that's one of the questions that we want to think about. And so I tend to, to think of that in terms of these um, concepts. Um, the first is thinking of order as a state of harmony or regularity or predictability of process and not of outcome, right? So when we think about a liberal social order, I think we should think about a regularity of process, a consistency of process, as opposed to in this particular social order, we are going to have that exact outcome. Right? And I think it's that drive that some people have to, to achieve specific known outcomes that leads to the kind of illiberalism that I think we all are, are kind of pushing back against and brings us all in this room today. Um, so I think of order as this state of harmony, to use Adam Smith's language, regularity or predictability of process. Um, the other uh, thing that you see a lot when you study emergence is the idea that order emerges out of apparent chaos or randomness. And, and I think that's another thing um, for the, the kind of psychological question that we were talking about with Jeff, right, that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with randomness and want to impose some kind of order because, you know, neurally, I think we are, we are predisposed as humans to look for patterns and to want patterns and to want predictability. Um, and so emergent order that does, isn't planned by any one entity is a bit unsettling, I think, for a lot of people. And you know, if you're a classical liberal or libertarian, you're probably a little more comfortable with that concept. And so part of what we have to do in our conversations with others who are not such classical liberal and libertarians is, I think, talk about that. Talk about this idea of emergent order and, and how it's possible for order to emerge without it being imposed. Um, and this emergence of social order comes out of, and this is, I think, really important in, in a lot of the strands of academic literature that, that study emergence, uh, that you get the emergence of social order out of the interactions of self-interested individuals. Whether we're talking about ants and their anthill or humans in trade, both of those examples focus on the fact that you get patterns of order that emerge because the agents, the individuals who are interacting there, the agents are self-interested, right? The ants are looking for food. They're looking to take back food, to, food back to, to, um, to the farm, so to speak. Uh, and, and so I think there's a, that's the other concept that comes out. So you can see just in, in my reference there, this idea of emergence, emergent order, is something that comes up in biology. 
it comes up, it, it actually, I think, or its, its origins uh, analytically and, and as, a, as a body of ideas um, are in biology. Of course, famously, you know, Darwin got a lot of his ideas about um, evolution and you know, the ideas that underlie this idea of emergence from reading people like uh, Adam Smith and, and Malthus. So, um, so there's a great connection there between political economy and biology. Um, then finally, order emerges without commands from a central source. Right? So it's these ants over here and these ants over here, are they're all doing their, their thing, but they are creating a beneficial pattern that enables their entire community of ants to flourish, but without some grand poobah ant <laughs> in the hill telling them all what to do. And similarly for humans, human social systems. Um, the other strand of, of uh, research and literature, the other kind of field of ideas that this idea of emergence sits in is the study of complex systems, otherwise known as complexity science. Complex systems have agents. Usually we think of agents as individuals who are making the decisions, making choices. Um, they have private knowledge. They have an environment or a context in which they're interacting. And their actions make them interdependent on each other. Um, they have a set of rules that govern, and this is you know, going back to what Jeff said before, rules that shape their incentives. And they have positive and negative feedback paths. Right? So if you have um, you know, agents in a system and they're interacting with each other, uh, their interdependencies and then the decisions they make are going to cause ripple effects. Right? So think of just kind of ripple effects at this point. And if you think about when you do something like you drop a stone in a lake and you see those ripple effects, and at first the ripple is big and then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time, right? That's an example of a negative feedback effect, right? That ripple is dampening out. It's, the, the lake is re-equilibrating, right? Um, whereas a positive feedback effect would be if you put that um, stone in the lake and the next thing you know there's a tsunami, right? Um, and so that's, obviously that doesn't happen, but um, you know, the, the, the kind of ripples dampening out is an example of a negative feedback effect. So we see these interactions. I'm going to get more concrete here with examples in a second. Um, and the other thing that when complexity scientists study complex systems, what they find is that if you, you have predictable processes going on at the system level, at the social system level, you have predictable processes that rules by which people interact, but the outcomes they generate are unpredictable, right? So there's no specific outcomes that they're gearing towards. But then what does that mean? That means that we have to look for patterns. Um, there's a, a broad history of this, uh, and um, I would put Lao Tzu in here as well that, that Tom mentioned last night, but I, I picked out a, a, different, um, a different Chinese philosopher, uh, Zhuang Shi. Good order results spontaneously when things are let alone. Right, is a good example. Um, Bernard Mandeville's famous uh, 17th century, uh, early 18th century fable of the bees, early 18th century, Fable of the Bees, which is uh, subtitled Private Vices and Public Virtues. 
And so his argument is basically people who, who follow their self-interest and they, even in private they do things that we would morally consider vices, they create these social outcomes that are actually beneficial. Uh, uh, a lot of people in the Scottish Enlightenment fit in this category. David Hume, Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, all are studying phenomena of emergent order. How is it that we can get beneficial social cooperation that enables human flourishing without top-down imposed order? Uh, Austrian economics falls in this category as well. So this is clearly a very selective history. And I'll talk more about the Austrian connection tomorrow afternoon. Uh, and as I just mentioned, complexity science and the modern study, mathematical study in, very, in many respects of nonlinear dynamics fits here as well. Um, a great quote to illustrate the concept is from Adam Ferguson, 1767. Every step and every moment of the multitude, even what are termed enlightened ages, are made with equal blindness to the future. Right? We don't know the future. We can't see the future. Um, this is a good point for me to recommend the famous, uh, um, oh god, I'm having a total senior moment. I just forgot his name. Yogi Berra, the famous philosopher Yogi Berra. Right? <laughs> Prediction is really hard, especially about the future. So. <laughs> Um, and Adam Ferguson was there, got there first. Nations stumble upon establishments which are indeed the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design. Notice the fundamental and subtle distinction there between human action and human design. Right? So human action gives us room for interaction. Interaction creates patterns. And so we get order emerging out of our interaction, but it's not like we intended for the particular outcome to happen that happened. It's that our interactions, based on our self-interest, create that outcome. So that should sound really familiar to any of you who have ever read An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, uh, because Adam Smith, in talking about why a business owner in, in England would want to do his trade as locally to himself as he could, He's talking about preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry. He intends only his own security, right? I'm going to trade with people who I know. I'm going to do stuff I know. It's less risky for me. And in so doing, he intends only his own gain. But by doing this, he is led by an invisible hand to promote an, intent which was no, an end which was no part of his intention. So notice how that's channeling this idea from Ferguson. And by the way, invisible hand was a really familiar trope at the time, right? So if you think Adam Smith was the invisible hand guy, I would encourage you to not think that because <laughs> the invisible hand was a pretty common trope at the time and it's a nice metaphor and he uses it well. He only uses it twice, once in Wealth of Nations and once in Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, so don't put too much weight on his use of the invisible hand, but the concept here is clear. This is you know, flourish institutions that enable humans to flourish mean that we can coordinate our actions through, and, but not through any deliberate design, achieve specific outcomes. All right, so good, we talked about that. This is a, a good concrete example of emergent order, plus Wagner.
All right, I think you get the idea. What are those birds doing? They're trying to get information. They're, they're basically, not consciously, but yeah, there's, there's information there. Hey, this wind current, I'm, I'm on this wind current over here and it's taking me in a way, hey, there are bugs over here. All right, I'm going this way. And so birds basically are programmed to, if you see a bird oh, you know, flying on a particular current and going toward, you know, then you follow them. And with that one simple rule, if you see one or more birds flying in this direction, you fly with them if they're your same kind of bird. Simple rule, right? And yet, that simple rule is sufficient to get flocking. Right? So this is a very good biological example of a emergent order in a social system, bird flocking. Um, fireflies are another example. Right, if you have enough fireflies in your background, event, in your backyard, eventually you'll see that they will all start to light on and off at the same pay, at the same rate. And so this is a phenomenon, a particular subsection of phenomenon in emergence called synchrony. Um, so that's a, a, a good example of at, at a kind of a biological level of what we mean by emergent order, where you have you're following simple rules and yet you end up having a pattern emerge and, and order emerge. But in human and in human systems we see the same thing, right? We see trade patterns emerge over time. But in, in human systems, the other thing that I think is really, really important and is part of what a lot of people push back against um, classical liberalism on is the uh, idea that in, in social systems where we can have emergent order, we have self-correcting mechanisms, right? That systems can be self-correcting. And this is that negative feedback, right? The ripple effect that I was talking about. And the, the processes that are self-correcting are really, really important and that they create what are called complex adaptive systems. So once we, you introduce the word adaptive here, we're being dynamic. And we're saying, okay, if I see this thing going on and I'm not necessarily a big fan of that particular outcome, I'm gonna do something else. And so I'm gonna do what we, you know, as humans think of as a course correction. Right? So error correction, the process of error correction comes up and what does this do that's really important and I think very valuable for us if we're interested in taking classical liberal ideas and applying them to persuading people to uh, think about policies that are more uh, uh, conducive to allowing order to emerge, it is that the, we have, you know, that, that these social systems have processes that are self-correcting and that leads to, that means we really wanna focus on systems that are resilient. Resilience is really important. And I thought it was really interesting in our discussion this morning with Jeff about the financial crisis. You know, one of the, one of the from, if you take the idea of emergent order and you take complexity science and you think about the, all of the myriad regulations and the myriad, you know, the Fannie, Freddie, FDIC, insurance, et cetera, all of the stuff that leads to the moral hazard that was embedded in the financial system, you can, and you use this idea to analyze that, what you'd say is those rules created a brittle system. And in that brittle system, in that choice between bankruptcy and bailout, you're gonna choose bailout, but that's, that's, you know, that's the brittle answer, right? Res bankruptcy is the resilient answer. Right? 
Um, now, I'm, this, I'm, I'm you're going to have to indulge me here for a second because I have a, another a very visual characterization so that you can really grasp what I mean by resilience. And it's a very, um, very self-absorbed one because I'm a cyclist. And so I love cycling. And I, uh, the Tour de France just ended. And so of course, I have cycling on the brain. Um, and so one of the reasons that I personally love watching bike racing is this concept of resilience, and, and participating in bike racing. I race my bike as well, uh, is this concept of resilience, right? In a resilient social system, you've got rules, but stuff happens. And when stuff happens, you sometimes have to do things that you didn't think you were going to have to in order to continue to achieve your individual objective, because there's no grand group objective in social systems, right? There's no teleology here. It's all individual objectives. And so you're going to have to do stuff. Um, so I have a, this is my example for that. Oh. Uomini della Colombia. And of course, they have to replay the crash because that's what they do. So why, what, what's interesting about that? Okay, in, in, in this physical example, right, going around a roundabout is going to be tricky. It's also very elegant, right? It just looks beautiful the way they flow around the roundabout. But it was raining, right? And so one guy hits a slick spot and he goes down. And other people run into him. But then what did you see the other riders around them do? Course corrected, right? They're like, oh, we got to avoid this guy and stay upright. And so this, for me, is a very strong metaphor for the kind of resilience that we look for in social systems. And that one of the benefits of emergent order is that it can contribute to resilient social systems. And I think here are some arguments that we've seen within scholarship in the, in the kind of classical liberalism framework for why. The first one that I would definitely recommend to you is Richard Epstein's book, Simple Rules for a Complex World. Uh, and so this is, this is um, basically an argument that if we have simple, clear, transparent rules, right? so simple institutions that give people as much room as possible to make their own decisions, that they will broadly make decisions that are reasonable given their, their situation and context, as, as Jeff said before, and that they will figure out ways to interact with each other that are mutually beneficial. Right. Um, but ru these rule systems are themselves emergent phenomena. So for example, Hayek's uh, analysis of the English common law is that the English common law basically started hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago from people at the very local level having to adjudicate conflict. Right? So this farmer and this farmer who are serfs for this lord of the manor are having a conflict over this particular property line. You know, his pigs are getting in my carrots. Or, ah! And so they go to the lord of the manor and said, OK, we can't, we can't agree to this, so 
you know, come up with some rule for us. And so then the Lord of the Manor, who's going to be the, the lawgiver in this case, says, okay, here's the property line, and you, the guy who owns the pig, you need to put up a fence. All right, so that's an example. All of these different examples of this in little teeny tiny communities scattered throughout Britain over millennia become custom, and they become precedent. And, and this is the process that Hayek discusses of the emergence of common law, that it takes custom and tradition and rules that stand the test of time and uh, treats them as precedent for as long as they're useful. Um, one of the interesting things we could talk about is what happens when precedent when you have, we were talking in the last session about like status quo interests and status quo bias. What happens when people are really wedded to that precedent and they have gotten a lot of benefit out of that precedent and the world has changed around them and now there are pressures to change that law and they want to resist that. Right. Um, Another example of this that, for those of you who are interested in environmental things, I strongly recommend the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who, um, in much of her work, especially captured in Governing the Commons, she studied the processes of bottom-up community self-governance in common pool resource situations. Right? So we all live in a community. We have a common irrigation system. And by, by definition, as a common irrigation system, we share it. We can't privatize it. How are we going to make the best use of it so that we don't run out of water, we don't overuse the water, and we still get the maximal possible yield out of our crops? Right? So we have to come up with rules to do that. And that's what she calls the process of bottom-up community self-governance for governing the commons. Um, another uh, important area where this, com this, inter this idea of emergence comes up is when we think about planning. And here I want to just mention two ideas um, to you to, for, for further reflection. One is, um, again, Hayek's arguments for the idea of the locus of control. That you know, it, it's not that um, in, in arguing for emergent order or arguing for a more kind of free market um, system, it's not that we don't have rules and we don't do planning, but it's that planning, f planning for future actions gets done by the right people at the right level. Right? And so in Hayek's articulation of this, the planning is done by individuals and in their kind of voluntary associations, right? families, co-ops, Right? So it's done by individuals and voluntary associations and not at any kind of centralized level. Right? So if you have centralized planning to try to impose order, Hayek argued that that is going to, number one, stamp out any beneficial emergent order that you know, it could crowd that out. And number two, it's going to have a whole bunch of unintended consequences and not get you where you think you're going. Um, the other application to this, and I know I've talked about uh, to a couple people since last night that are, or have some interest in this, is in the idea of things like city planning and urban planning. And one of the, one of the kind of rich veins of research that you can look at uh, to think about this idea of emergent order is, what do we do with cities? Right? Because cities are themselves are, are, are basically laboratories over the past centuries. Cities are laboratories for emergent order. Um, but they're also laboratories for planned order, 
And so you see that interaction of kind of top-down imposition of rules with very dynamic, very robust, organic processes of innovation and change, you know, socially, culturally, technologically. And those things all interact in cities. Um, and so if, if you're interested in those kind of questions, thinking about emergent order is, is, um, is very fruitful. Um, and I have some, I have a list of references here at the end that I'm, I am thinking about that I'll point to there. So what's the, the punchline? If we, if we think about emergent order and this idea of spontaneous order or emergence in social systems, the idea is that if we have social systems that have a clear, fairly simple set of transparent rules to enable parties to coordinate to mutual benefit, uh, that we're going to get this beneficial complexity. And it's the interactions that people will have in their social systems that enable them to flourish. Right? And so I think that's the strand that emergent order gets us to think about. Um, and I've got a very long list here. And, uh, Tom, you're going to post the slides, right? OK. Or, well, if, if not, take a picture or or I will definitely you know, ha ask to have the list of references, because every one of my three talks has references at the end for further reading. So you'll see here, like I've got the, um, the Leonard Reed and Pietro Rivoli, um, I Pencil Travels of a T-shirt, uh, you know, how, does, how, do, how, how do goods emerge and how does trade emerge? How do we coordinate to do stuff? Uh, without any kind of central uh, human design. Um, in the more kind of complexity science nonlinear systems, some really nice works to read about that are by Stephen Johnson's Emergence and Steve Strogatz's Sync. Steve Strogatz is a mathematician at Cornell, and he is the go-to guy for the mathematical nonlinear dynamics. But the book Sync does a really nice job of talking about it without your having to go through all the math which is great. Um, obviously, Smith, um, and in terms of Hayek, I'm, I'm going to recommend the use of knowledge in society, which I think I do every single time I talk to any other human being on the planet. Uh, and also, his theory of the, co the um, common law as a set of legal rules that are themselves an emergent process is in his law, legislation, and liberty. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom's governor governing the commons covers uh, the uh, idea of um, voluntary bottom-up community self-governance in, in common pool resource situations. Eric Beinhocker's The Origin of Wealth is a really interesting book, and I think for you know, the, the set of interests that bring us here together, Beinhocker's book is interesting and in some ways challenging. Um, he's a guy who, I think he used to work at McKinsey, and he now, he might still work at McKinsey, but he teaches at Oxford as well. And uh, he takes a very complexity view of business and management and organizations. And so he takes a lot of this Scottish Enlightenment and Smith and Hayek and, and looks at organizations and says, OK, in this modern dynamic uh, economy where the rate, the pace of change is accelerating and there's so much dynamism, you know, we can't have businesses that are structured the way GM was with the very strong hierarchy and all of the silos. And, um, and so I think uh, 
I think that that would be an interesting read if, if you're interested in that. Um, I mentioned Epstein's simple rules for a complex world. And then in terms of the, um, my last point about urban planning, two works that uh, I think are, are classic and really important. One is a, is a, a classic classic, Jane Jacobs' The Life and Death of Great American Cities. Um, and uh, she's got some other works that I think are similarly good, but, but um, this is where the place to start. And she very famously uh, lived in New York and uh, succeeded in um, pushing back against some very heavy-handed top-down urban planning in the 1960s in New York. Uh, and um, and this, this work is part of her more academic-y articulation of that activism. And then finally, uh, Jeff's colleague, Ed Glazer, uh, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. Uh, Ed Glazer is one of the, the um, I think, most interesting and important modern economists studying uh, urban systems. And I think a lot, of, a lot of what comes out of his argument is that having uh, rules and institutions that enable us to interact and to find the ways that we can come together enable systems to emerge that make us flourish, including cities. So I'm going to stop there. Oh, I'm sorry, and I'm, I've also been given directions to ask when you ask questions. Please state your name so that we can all start to get to know each other. Kevin Duell. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> so in regards to uh, the need for simple rules and complex emergent orders, it seems when thinking about human societies, things like uh, markets, that culture, what I think would be the glue that puts, you know, holds yeah. together those uh, uh, emergent orders are really not that simple. In fact, right. they can be incredibly complex. So I was kind of curious to hear what you yeah. thought about that and, and to what degree you think that, um, you know, whether you think they are in fact simple <laughs> or whether it's matter an issue of, of quantity, that that's a right. large number of simple rules, uh, or if you think there might be something else yeah. to that. Well, and so if you think about, I mean, the, the, if you think about the history of long-distance cross-cultural trade, it's kind of fascinating because you, you have to look at that and go, how did this actually ever even happen, right? Because it's so complicated. First, you've got language, then you've got cultural norms and sort of norms about about exchange that can differ very substantially across cultures. Um, yeah, so it's almost it's 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 almost like how on earth did that ever happen? Uh, even though you know, and within societies, they may operate by what they think are very simple rules. And part of the challenge is that you know we 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 may have rules that we think are simple, but a lot of them are tacit, right? And so that's another another challenge that we have. And I think. At least when I think about this, I think this is one reason why we end up having so much imposed order, right? Why we end up having so much legislation, support, you know, substituting and crowding out other forms of of rulemaking 
is because there's all this tacit stuff and all this cultural stuff, and it's just going to be easier if we just have one uniform rule that applies to everyone. But then we get into the unintended consequences of, well, okay, you know, first of all, yeah, it may be a uniform rule, and by de, you know, de jure, it may apply to everyone, but de facto on the ground, it never plays out that way, right? So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yeah. oh, good. you want to? I guess here's for living an examined life to make sure we don't lose all those uh, right. hidden uh, simple rules that otherwise we wouldn't think of. Well, and I, I, I do think if I'm, uh, I'm trying to find all the silver linings that I can out of our current political cultural situation. <laughs> uh, and one of them, I think, is that we're having more open conversations about things like civic virtue, right? And the first time I ever heard anything about civic virtue was actually at the Cato Institute Summer <laughs> Seminar in 1989, I think, was this idea of sort of classical republicanism and civic virtue. And, you know, and so, so maybe having that more conversation within the realm of political conversation rather than economics about, because uh, notice, I mean, I, I, and I harped on that word harmony. Right? Adam Smith really very deliberately uses the word harmony, and I've just, I got the bit in my teeth on that, and I run with it. Because what does harmony mean? Harmony means we're all in the symphony, and you know, you're the oboes, and you're the cellos, and we're each playing our part and doing our thing. And it's the confluence of them that creates the order, which is the beauty of the music. It's not uniformity. It's not that we're all doing the same thing. Right? And so I think having more conversations that cultivate that idea of harmony, which means toleration. And I think part of the difficulty we have with conversations with some of our progressive friends is what do we mean by that toleration? And so, um, yeah, I'm trying to help that happen, kind of. <laughs> Thanks for your question. Hi, uh, Daniel McGlynn. Hi, Daniel. Uh, since your uh, bio indicates uh, your research in regulatory uh, institutions, technological yes. change, innovation, the community, the social community, which I'd like you to, to expand on in those contexts of your research, is the internet. Yes. The, in fact, the dark web and other unintended consequences, loss of privacy, which yeah. so many people in our society are now realizing. That's a great question. Uh, and it's something that I've thought about but not in any, like I haven't done any kind of research on the dark web or, but I, but it's something I think about a lot because, right, the internet is, uh, is I think a, a, a really great example of an emergent order phenomenon, right? The, um, and, oh, and actually if I'm adding to my list of references and you're interested in this, uh, Walter Isaacson's book, The Innovators, is a great read. Um, it gets a little nerdy in, in like the 1930s, 40s stuff. It gets a little nerdy in there, but uh, he starts with Ada Lovelace as the first computer scientist, first computer programmer, which, yay, <laughs> and goes through basically, you know, Steve Jobs and, and into the internet. And um, if you talk to, say, Vint Cerf, and you ask Vint Cerf, what is it that made the internet such a large and ever-expanding platform for enabling creativity and innovation and, and flourishing, 
He says it's basically the cultivation of an environment of permissionless innovation. And by permissionless, he doesn't mean like, you know, woohoo, just let it all ride. By permissionless, I think he means take the common law framework of contract and fraud and et cetera. And within that framework, you have boundaries for how we interact. And then we come up with all these technologies and we, we create all of these layers of applications on top of those technologies. Um, so that's probably the kind of thing you have in mind, right? And then within that, what do we do once we have, once we have the World Wide Web as the layer on top of that? We have interaction through things like social media, which definitely has its pluses and minuses, right? <laughs> Um, you know, because there's some aspects of social media that are extremely fruitful and, and give you that kind of flourishing, but then there's also the extent to which it, um, well, I, all I have to do is say the word Twitter and yeah. So, um, but I think this is true of all dynamic social systems, right? That you're gonna have this mix of, hey, there's this cool new stuff and we can do all this cool new stuff with the cool new stuff, ah, oh wow. It really makes this very nasty, poisonous conversation happen. So maybe we should just ban it. You know, it, th that I think we've seen that repeatedly through human history. Um, I don't know. Does that get at your question? Good. Hi, I'm Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, so you were talking about common law um, and precedent kind of being in itself an emergent order. Um, kind of a dynamic process, but then someone taking the view of um, Epstein would say that these rules are actually the guidelines for other dynamic processes. Right. So would you say it's more important to have um, the ability to change like uh, a dynamic or mutable set of rules, or is it more important to have a simple enough set of rules so that they may never need to be changed? That's a great question, right? This is, this is, this is the Madison question, right? I mean, this is, this is basically our Madisonian, you know, how do, we, how do we create a set of rules for, you know, humans, humans are knaves. How do we set a rule, set of rules when even when the knaves are in power, it's still gonna be a resilient system. Right, so that rules about rules. This is that constitutional question, the rules about rules, right? And it's a balance, right? Because you want, you want information flow, you want those feedback effects going, you know, as the world changes and you want the rules to be, not be maladaptive, right? You want the rules to fit comfortably with the environment in which people are making choices but at the same time, you want some consistency, stability, con you know, certainty, transparency. Yeah, I think that's the struggle, right? How do you find that balance? Thanks. Right. So I think you've identified the right question. Gil Robinson. Um, Hi, Gil. I'm going to invite you to speak about electricity. I'm from San Antonio, which uh, has a city-owned utility. Yes, you do. Uh, you know CPS. Uh, uh, they're busy installing smart meters, and I monitor a group that's trying to bring them down. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, what is what is your particular complaint about the smart meters? Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm not uh, the the people I know that are against it actually fear the radiation, which I, as a physician, I think is 
bullshit. Yeah, there's not a lot of science uh, behind that. Yeah, uh, but um, uh, the security measures and right. so forth, and and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not sure how important smart meters are or are not. Uh, I what one thing I do know the cost of the system is vastly more than CPS says and. <laughs> Uh, the local paper and CPS and the local yeah. government are basically stonewalling it. Uh, but I would I would be interested in hearing your take as an expert exactly the what you see as the positives and negatives of yep. smart meters. And I, 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 by the way, opted out, and they've never charged me the twenty dollar month really? surcharge. And, yeah, and that's that's what my buddies keep saying. That's impossible. But uh, interesting. It, anyway, I did that just as a precaution, since I yeah. didn't know if this idea that hackers could get into my house was true or not. But, yeah, um, this is a great question. We should probably talk more in the details, like over a glass of wine. But yeah. but in terms of, um, I mean, I and full disclosure, I've been very active in policy. In, in kind of policy making to uh, encourage the promulgation of smart meters, right? So, but but for the and the the real reason is that I think um, that the smart grid, right, the the digital communications overlay over the old electromechanical, you know, wires, is how we can finally fully create transactive systems and competitive retail markets in electricity. So I'm, for me, it's, it's a direct Hayek play. And I think when Vernon Smith is here tomorrow night, uh, this is some, from some of the work Vernon and I did together, is you know, that it's the, you know, the, the digital technology and the electric power network are what's going to enable competitive retail markets. And the problem really you know, has been uh, and, and you say it, you know, in your case it's a municipal utility, but whether it's a muni or a regulated uh, investor-owned utility, the problem really is the fact that it's a monopolist. And, um, and in this case, you know, they, they, make the, they make the argument that we want to make these investments to reduce the cost per unit, right, the least cost argument. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make everyone get a smart meter because then what we're doing is we're ordering 300,000 of them, and that means we'll get a good price. And, and the regulator, or in this case it's the Muni, so it's the, it's the city council, allows them to do that because then they just get paid their costs. Um, but then that means that they don't have any incentive to control their costs, right? So it's a bunch of very, you know, the political economy of this is very, you know, messy and, and ugly and unattractive and has very little attachment to any kind of price signals or markets. Um, but in some cases what's happening, uh, and actually surprisingly in Chicago where I live is, um, you know, the, we have retail competition, we have retail choice, and the smart meters are enabling retail competitors to come in, and the regulated incumbent has basically said, okay, um, you, the consumer, own your data. It's your data. And you can, you have to choose whether or not our historical data, you can give it to third parties so that they can figure out how best to, to come up with, with products that meet your needs. 
um, the cybersecurity, the privacy, all of that are huge, live, important, active issues. Um, and I, I think it's important to be concerned about those. And there's all kinds of policy people who are working on those. Um, it's very unlikely. If, if, you, if you change the password on the router on your, uh, in your house, it's very unlikely that a hacker is going to be able to come in and get at your meter. So. Thank you. <laughs> my name is Tegan. Hi, Tegan. Um, so my question is uh, a little bit less economic and more philosophical about um, emergent orders. So uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville was observing America, he predicted that the democratic nations wouldn't produce any great works of art. And you have contemporary uh, aesthetic philosophers like Nicholas Wolterstorff who speak about the aesthetic squalor of, uh, of the Midwestern American city and that sort right. of thing. So my question is, do emergent orders undermine aesthetic values? Do you, do you think that that happens? That's a really great question. Because not all emergent orders are good. Right? There are, and, and actually one of my friends, Virgil Storr, has a really great paper where, you know, called Bad Spontaneous Orders. Right? So you can get bad outcomes. Right? So I, I don't want to be up here promising unicorns and rainbows. Right? You can get bad outcomes. And I, I, my reading of aesthetic stuff, though, is very British. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not familiar with the strand of literature you're talking about. But, um, but I certainly, within, within the British kind of aesthetic, aesthetic strand down into like Ruskin and, and, and William Morris and the Pre-Raphaelites and all that, you get that same theme that, um, you know, that you need to have some kind of control and planning to, to kind of put some guardrails in order to get, to, to uh, minimize the probability of bad aesthetics, right? Um, it's a good question. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, my name is Derek. Hi, Derek. Um, and I, two-part question when you talk about flourishing. So um, when we look at flourishing, should we be measuring that objectively, subjectively, some right. combination of the two? Um, and if it should be some combination of the two, what should we do in situations where maybe the assessments don't align? Yeah. So they may be subjectively in a poor situation, believe it's poor, but objectively it's good. Are you and this is, are, you, have, are you familiar with this vast happiness literature? Mm, yeah, fairly familiar. Because I'm I'm not I'm, I know it exists, but I haven't read deeply in it, um, and I know that there are concerns of if you do kind of subjective people reporting their self-reporting of their subjective levels of happiness, right? And is happiness really flourishing? Right? I think the philosophers would tell us no, that happiness and flourishing are not the same. Are not the same, and so yeah. I guess if, if we wanted to try to quantify and operationalize the concept of flourishing, can we do better than happiness? As an economist and a fairly consequentialist economist, of course, because all economists are consequentialists, right? When it comes right down to it. Um, although I would I would actually add to Jeff's taxonomy and put in a little pitch for virtue ethics, but. Um, you know, it, 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 one of the ways that we try to quantify it in economics is GDP per capita, right? So measures of economic activity. And that flourishing, but that's a very materialist way of framing it, right? Um, so I doubt that there's going to be like a one single, here's the way we're going to quantify flourishing, boom. I think, you know, the happiness literature, warts and all, 
the GDP per capita literature warts and all. Um, and if you, are you a philosophy student? Uh, no. no, I'm, I'm in a financial planning program. Yeah. So I, I think that though this gives our, the philosophers something to work on, right, is to, to come up with a way to, to kind of stitch all these together and give us a better framework. Okay. That's a good question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rich. Hi, Rich. So this requires a little bit of setup, so bear with me. Uh, so I was watching a program on Mistbusters a while back um, about the most efficient way to board a plane, whether you should board front to back or uh, back to front, or you should go you know, from the outward in, you know, from right. the window seat to the aisle seat, or if you just have a free-for-all where everyone just picks their own seats and goes on when they choose. And so what they found was that uh, the most efficient process is just to have a free-for-all and everyone just go in and pick their seat uh, however they choose. Uh, but when they surveyed people on their satisfaction with that method, they found that that was the least customer satisfaction yep. uh, when you just had a free-for-all. And so basically my question is, how do you get people comfortable with the idea that there's not going to be a central plan or it's going to be a little bit chaotic? That's a great question. And this is all, you know, and, and why we like Southwest Airlines, right? It's yep. cheap. You get to pick your own seat. But then you grumble about it because it's like, Rrr. but yeah. Um, so this is the Southwest Airlines question. How do, and, and, and that's, I think that's the difficulty of persuasion because it's a, it's a persuasion that runs right up against, you know, millennia of evolution, right? That our brains have not evolved for, our, our brains have evolved to want to try to, manage chaos and minimize chaos and create order and have very, you know, patterns. Um, and I think that's the big challenge. I haven't found a good way, um, mostly because I'm too academic and kind of too philosophical about it. But I, I also, because I work in electricity, I talk with a lot of engineers, right? And so this is, this is kind of the, you know, trying to get engineers to accept uh, market processes as ways to coordinate supply and demand in electricity networks is, is exactly this. They're just like, nope, not buying it, nope. Um, and I think what I've found, at least in terms of having conversations, not so much with engineers, but with other people about policy, is, and this is something that we economists are very bad at, is coupling the logic with the emotional, right? Because we have to appeal to people's emotions, right? So I think if we can find a way to, to appeal to the kind of emotional urge for order imposed, if we can find a way to appeal to that and say what you just said, that that would be the way to do it. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any ideas? Um, no, I can't say I do. No. Well, good. We we have we have uh, drinks coming this evening. We can figure something out. Hi, Brian Mulligan. Um, two things. Uh, two notes. One is uh, Al Gore created the computer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so let's absolutely. Get that. Right. Okay. Secondly, uh, in the UK, I don't know if you. I'm sure you've been there in the last three decades. The monstrosities they've built as a result of government regulation yes. is just horrid. So yes. that would argue against that, I think. Um, and given your work, are you, do you, I happen to be a CPA and an investment banker and my own investment banking firm. So I'm governed by probably no less than 10 SROs. Now, SROs, self-regulatory 
yeah. um, organizations. They are they they sort of they aren't the government. They aren't the agency. They report to an agency, and they're sort of shielded. So, like when yeah. Trump said, two regulations out for everyone that goes. They're they're creating more regulations. Is this an area of study for you, or is it a? Because it's, it, it's an, maddening. I have yeah, to it's say. not an area of study for me. I know I know that there is work on this, yeah. um, and some folks, like for example, at the Mercatus Center, have are doing some work on on the. You know, on, on regulation, and this kind of gets to the question when we were talking about environment and you know pesticides and so on in the previous session, and and uh, institutions for self-regulation, right? And that's part of this kind of negative feedback effects and self-correction in emergent in emergent processes. So, like for example, my dad was a CPA, right. and I grew up in Pittsburgh, and so. You know, he was very, very, very proud of being a CPA, as he should have been, and being a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and the, so the AICPA, and the PICPA, the Pennsylvania Institute of Certified yeah. Public Accountants. And so, you know, the, there's all of these kind of trade associations, you know, self-regulation that, and it's the, if I understand the history correctly, it was the AICPA that really worked with other trade associations in other countries to formulate generally accepted accounting principles um, and, and promulgate those. And so those are other pathways yeah. for creating that's, that rules framework. Um, well, the, the yeah. AICPA is a walk in the park compared to FINRA. Right. <laughs> With but, the, yeah, and, yeah, but then you get all of that re federal regulation, and then you get the these institutions that are in the middle, and then you get the, the, and then the, the kind of political economy public choice problem comes in where the trade associations then uh, serve the interests of the regulator and, yeah. it, uh, and, and it, it just becomes this, at some point you just kind of want to do like extreme makeover regulatory <laughs> edition, right? That's what I would like to do. And, <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean I've been arguing for extreme makeover regulatory edition in electricity for the past 20 years, and what's really making it happen is technological change, right? Because digital technologies are putting more empowerment in the hands of individuals and battery uh, improvement and battery improvement. Yeah. So I'm not sure if if the technological change is going to help in yeah. terms of clearing out all that thicket. Yeah. But they seem very immune to anything, you know, they seem often there, and put aside the AICPA, because they, they, I think they do a fairly good job of balancing, but FINRA is just regulation yeah. after regulation, more lawyers, lawyers, lawyers on top, you know, and the board right. creating more rules that are impossible. I mean, I must send in 10 reports to FINRA, or, you know, SEC, FINRA, yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah. Um, and it's just, it's stifling. Yeah. Um, you know, it's stifling business. Quite and I, I would definitely check out the research at Mercatus okay. on the on the Finra stuff because I know that they've looked at, at that for sure. Okay, thank you. Hi, I'm Mike. Hi. Uh, just to correct the previous question, we all know that Al Gore did not invent neither the internet nor the computer. <laughs> he invented the algorithm, of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very good. Okay. So you use the term. Uh, Permissionless innovation. Permissionless innovation. Which, yes. uh, when I heard it just actually a week ago for the first time, I th think and I grew it's two inches taller. It reminded me of uh, better to ask for forgiveness than, or uh, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was thinking about that in the business model, obviously Uber comes straight to mind, yep. where you know they just uh, 
regulation be damned. We're going to start driving in the city, and you know we'll sort it out later. And I Worm think, our way into the hearts of people, and, you know, and then try to get laws rid of be us. damned. And I wondered if, <laughs> uh, and you know, we'll sort it out later. And obviously, there were a few fights, but I think in the end, they won. I wonder if you could comment on the business model. I don't know yep. kind of what you call it, but maybe uh, you know self self-imposed uh, liberalism or something where yeah. we're going to do it and uh, you know what are you going to do about it and by the time you work your way through the government we've got a solution in some way right um, I'm uh, if I, I'm going to put on my normative hat and usually I have on my positive hat but I'm going to put my normative hat on now and I am all in favor of that business model you know it's just like you know going in and not and asking for forgiveness and not permission is uh, the real guts of dynamism that undercuts entrenched incumbent status quo, right? And you know, Schumpeter was—he didn't explicitly articulate it in so many terms, but he was the first guy in economics to really, you know, kind of identify that and say, actually, no, maybe I could put it to Bastiat, right? We could we could trace this all the way to Bastiat, make Tom happy, um, you know that that. You know, if you can come in and you don't ask for permission, you can come in and just bring your best, bring your best effort. And and what and, and this is more like what I'm going to talk about tomorrow afternoon. The whole idea that markets, right? Because because part of part of what makes this system work is markets have prices and profits. So price signals and profit signals. That system of profit and loss is what in is what indicates whether or not that business model is delivering value for consumers. And um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all, and in fact, I, I, as someone who, I'm, I have a working paper at the moment called From Airbnb to Solar Towards a Transactions Cost Model of an Electricity, Retail Electricity Platform, right? So these digital platforms are, are really one of the best manifestations of that, whether it's Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or TaskRabbit or, you know, DoorDash, whatever, you know, whatever platform to provide whatever thing um, without having to go in and, and obtain a license first is, you know, and, and just look at all of the, the ways that those have, you know, made our lives better off. Um, and then, and then, of course, yeah, the political economy of the interaction with the taxi drivers is, is of course, going to be one of the challenges. Um, yeah. Right. Hello, my name is Chad Lonsky, and um, I was wondering how you think spontaneous order could help solve negative externalities. And I guess using urban planning as yeah. an example, um, one of the biggest arguments for urban planning policy is that we need compatible uses next to each other right. for a whole property values argument. Uh, so what, what would sort of be, I guess, the uh, spontaneous order, order argument to a solution? That's a great question. Um, yeah, and I thought you might be interested in the, exactly, the Jane yes. Jacobs and the Glazer stuff. Um, the uh, the kind of empirical comparison that a lot of people will do is they will say, like, you know, compare San Francisco with Houston, right? Which one of these do we aesthetically uh, think is a nicer city, or which one do we more want to live in? And generally, most most people, you you most people people who ask the question expect you all to say San Francisco, right? 
Um, increasingly, though, as we talked about uh, before, you know, the property values are going so high in San Francisco because of land use restrictions and um, lack of uh, you know, zoning to build more. Um, whereas Houston doesn't have that. And I think within cities like Houston, you have pockets emerge. Right? And I think this, I'm, I'm, essentially, I'm essentially very badly articulating Glazer's argument. Because I think Glazer, well, part of Glazer's argument is that you have, you have these kind of attractions to each other that, uh, and you're going to get these, what in economics we call economies of agglomeration. Right? You're going to get people who want to situate their stuff near each other because they benefit from it. And, um, and so you'll get these kind of pockets. And so you'll get patterns emerge even without the zoning to impose whatever pattern the zoning is going to impose. And part of the challenge, and this was the, the kind of the, the earlier question, you know, part of the challenge is uh, getting people comfortable to say, we don't know exactly where this is going to be situated and where that's going to be situated. But we can say that if we have simple rules, Generally, these folks will be here, and these will be here. Um, I do think there's a lot of uh, inherent processes that make that difficult. Um, and here, I'm thinking about Thomas Schelling's model of segregation, right? That even, and, and this is a complexity model, basically, but that even with simple rules about you know, I, I want to, you know, suppose I'm blue and I want the person who lives next to me this way and this way to be blue and I don't care about anything else, you know, then that means that the yellows are going to end up over there and the blues are going to end up here. And so we have these self-reinforcing processes of segregation that are kind of inherent in our, in our cognitive makeup. And so that's where you know you have to ask the moral question, right? Are there some value? Is there some value, some moral value, to having things like you know anti-segregation in lending and da 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 da, which is separate from the kind of like industrial use zoning question? But I think all of those are are in the mix. Right. Um, Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I feel like a lot of my answers are very non-definitive. Right? I can't say like 12. The answer is 42, right? <laughs> but um, you know, because I think one of, and that's one of the challenges when we think about this concept of emergence is, you know, real awesome stuff happens when we let it happen, and we just don't know what exactly it's going to look like at the end. And the challenge for us as classical liberals is that that's not a real compelling value proposition for people who very emotionally and cognitively want. The box. Right. Hi, I'm David, and in light of that, sorry for this question. Maybe. No, so, go. No, no, no. <laughs> you referenced um, the bottom up community self governments of common pool resources. It seems that there's two options. Either you come up with a, a sort of emergent self governance for it, or you end up with the tragedy of the commons. Can yeah. you speak to how a, a form of self governance actually? comes up without avoiding the otherwise inevitable tragedy yeah. of the commons. How do people, it seems like the only way to do that is to actually have a form of centralized planning where the people yeah. get together and decide. And that seems almost the opposite of emergent. Yep. 
Well, and, and so, yeah, don't, I, I guess what I would say is don't think about emergent order as meaning that there are no rules, right? And so what the, the big takeaway, I think, from Ostrom's work is to have the rules emerge from the context as opposed to, right, so, you know, we, we all are on an irrigation system and we share the water in the irrigation system. And in order for all of us to get some benefit out of the irrigation system, we have to coordinate our use. And the way we're going to coordinate our use is we're going to have a community meeting and we're going to say, okay, we should come up with some rules. We're going to appoint a committee. The committee is going to come up with some rules. We'll have someone else vet the rules. We'll put it to the, you know, and then we'll come up, rules about rules, we'll come up with some decision, you know, are we going to decide by majority vote? Is unanimity, da, 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 right? So it can be more organic, less spontaneous, while more still organic, being yeah, emergent. So it's still organic in terms of you know, but but the the identifying the need for the rules and the context, and then determining what rules have the best fitness with the situation, right? And that's that kind of bottom up process. As opposed to here we are a community and we have an irrigation system, and Tom comes in from Washington, because he's from the government and he's here to help, and here's what you need to do to manage your irrigation system, right? Those are two very different ways of having either planned order or emergent order. But even in that emergent order, there's still rules. It's just that the rules emerge out of what the participants see as most valuable in their situation. Thank you. Um, and this is going to come up more when we talk about the environmental stuff tomorrow. And we'll talk ex explicitly about tragedy of the commons.